Welcome to the inaugural season of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, the podcast. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kekas-Wolf. Uh, Sunil, my favorite headline in the San Francisco Chronicle in 2017, I think, is rich SF residents get a shock. Someone bought their street. So it turns out there's this story where somewhere up in the sea cliffs, this couple, a Presidio Terrace actually, this couple ended up waiting for a, an access road and kind of a neighborhood, almost people's like driveways to come up onto auction because the HOA was so busy with other stuff that this couple ended up being able to buy all these people's driveways, which seems like completely ridiculous, but also in the context of San Francisco, almost feels like well, yeah, everybody here is so busy with their stuff that you could just forget that somebody else could buy your driveway out from underneath you. I think the thing that shocked a lot of people was not only that it happened, but it further exacerbates, I think, something that happens in San Francisco and many other cities just under the surface where you have somebody who is from the other side of the road doing something a little scrappier. And so it clearly pits the well-to-do against folks who just found an opportunity. It's kind of like the promise of around here, or at least it's the promise that drew me to the Bay Area. Like, I came here because I thought, you know, I grew up as a poor kid outside of Eugene, Oregon, and I went to school in L.A. at a little liberal arts school. I didn't get to say Harvard in the first two minutes of our conversation, so you know that I didn't go there, but I went to this little school in Southern California, and I made my way to the Bay Area because I believed that there was a promise here that I could work my ass off, and if I work my ass off, I could be as successful as anybody else. You know, at the same time, the extremes are pretty notable these days in politics and really in everything in economic disparity. You know, for our guest today, Rick Marini, he talks a little bit about, you know, taking a more centrist approach to solving some of San Francisco's problems. And I really enjoyed talking to him about that. He's had many successful kind of investments and ventures in the technology world. But to your point, like this conversation with this as his background and all this experience and expertise that he has, has a really clean view into, like, here's how you approach living in San Francisco as a pragmatist. He's a longtime San Francisco resident who moved here from the East Coast and is active in the technology world. He can demystify and does, in fact, demystify Bitcoin for a lot of people during this interview. And that's what he's spending most of his time on. You know, we don't talk to Rick about this, uh, but he is on the advisory board for DreamWorks and AngelList and also Aston Martin Racing, which we didn't talk about. And I think we need to have him back on so we just can talk about car racing. Let's do that next time. But for now, enjoy this interview with Rick Marini. We really appreciate you being here today on This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley podcast. Uh, And as we do in this podcast for our listeners, we start with a bit of grounding in the culture of San Francisco what Sunil and I both have felt and had conversations about in the last couple of years is how many of the people that we know in San Francisco aren't actually from San Francisco. And he, growing up in Cleveland and me growing up in Oregon, have some things about our youth that have contributed to how we show up here and the culture and the community that we interact with. And um, we love hearing those stories. So we want to start out with first and just ask you, where do you grow up? So I grew up in New Hampshire, a small town in southern New Hampshire called Merrimack, between Manchester and Nashua, which are the two biggest cities there. But yeah, my town was about 18,000 people, so pretty small. But we were an hour north of Boston. So, you know, Boston is really the big city that I relate to. And I've uh, been out here in Silicon Valley in San Francisco for the last uh, almost 20 years. So although I definitely call this home, 
my roots are back east. Yeah. So uh, Boston or New Hampshire, I'm a West Coast guy. I grew up in Oregon, lived in Southern California, then here, and even Washington a little bit. Talk a little bit about the relationship between Boston and New Hampshire. Maybe even I thought about them as the same thing, which you can kick me to the table for if you want. Well, Boston is definitely the area that you want to be as a young person. Um, much more culture, much more diversity than New Hampshire. New Hampshire's, you know, it's a nice place to grow up. It's safe and it's, you know, got good schools and all. But I think later on, um, coming from New Hampshire, Boston is kind of aspirational. You want to move there. And I did live in Boston for several years, went to grad school at Harvard Business School, and then started my first company in Boston. And I loved my time there. Yeah. Um, loved Boston and still do today. And there's actually a lot of parallels, I'd say, yeah. between San Francisco in Boston, right? They're both. Like what, how should I think about Boston as a West Coaster, as a San Franciscan? So, you know, some of the parallels would be Boston and San Francisco, both they're on the water. Um, they both have highly educated uh, kind of demographic. You've got great schools, right? MIT and Harvard and then Stanford and Berkeley out here. They're both pretty tech focused. Yeah. You know, Boston back in the 80s and 90s was really you know, a great tech hub. Mm -hmm. A lot of hardware and software companies where the internet companies really took off out here. Yeah. What I don't miss about Boston is the weather. <laughs> <laughs> the weather was brutal growing up back east. I don't miss that at all. And, you know, now where things are in technology, I think San Francisco is definitely the place to be over Boston. Uh -huh. I think you can still do, you know, interesting things in tech in Boston, but not what you can do as a startup. Got I it. think San Francisco or, or Silicon Valley is unique to the world uh, in terms of being able to start companies here. Where do you currently live in the city? So I live in Russian Hill in the city, and I've actually lived in the city, you know, various places for, like I said, almost 20 years. And uh, we finally plunked down roots. I've got a wife and two kids. We bought a house, and we're here for the long haul. What's the single biggest change you've seen maybe in the last decade in San Francisco if there's been, aside from the obvious, obviously we're, we're here during the greatest period of wealth creation since the Renaissance, basically. There's been a lot of nice buildings and all that put up, but... Any other observations, cultural observations you'd make about San Francisco? Well, you know, I'm a tech entrepreneur, so a lot of the way that I view San Francisco or my life is through that tech lens. Uh -huh. And one of the interesting things that I, I've seen in San Francisco over maybe the last five years is that a lot of the uh, the entrepreneurs that used to live maybe in Palo Alto coming out of Stanford or at Menlo Park or even San Jose down that area, all these 20-something entrepreneurs want to live in San Francisco for lots of obvious reasons, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a much more vibrant city. Um, there's more diversity. There's just more fun stuff to do here. But, you know, the VCs started to see that. They identified that pattern and said, okay, we need to get away from Sand Hill Road down in Menlo and get up to San Francisco and follow these entrepreneurs up here if we want to get in the best deals. So now South Park and Soma has become kind of VC central where you've got you know, a, a ton of those, those buildings are now housed with VCs. And what that to me is going to, to drive is that more and more companies will be funded here and therefore started here. And it's going to accelerate a flywheel. And this is why I'm an optimist on San Francisco for the next 10 years is that um, not only have we created great innovation, but when the money is here and the best entrepreneurs are here, you're just going to have more successes um, coming out of here with it, which is inspirational for the next you know, yeah. set of entrepreneurs. And when the money is here, that's when the entrepreneurs are going to come here as well. So for me, San Francisco is going to continue to be that that innovation center for at least the next decade. Do you feel like the VC community and new companies showing up in San Francisco in particular is benefiting all of San Francisco? Like, 
how, how do you feel about your relationship into the arts community or kind of the your relationship with civics and kind of civic responsibility over the course of the last several years and, and their relationship into the VC community? So overall, um, I think it's a positive thing mm -hmm. that we are such an innovative, creative city, and a lot of that is driven by tech. That said, obviously, there's a lot of artists that don't have the salaries that techies have. And when you have a situation uh, on the housing side where there's far more demand than supply and you've got one group that can't afford what the other group can, you start to displace people that are, are really important to the culture of the city. So I definitely see that as a, as a downside. There's not an easy solution for that. Yeah. And, I, and I'm not coming here with one today. But overall, I believe that when you're the center of innovation for the world, that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, the hope is that you can somehow bring some of that wealth creation to help others continue mm -hmm. to be in this city that are so important to the city, especially on the art side. Yeah. Do you get an opportunity to think about that as an investor in San Francisco? Are you thinking about the kinds of businesses that you're investing in and trying to bring into San Francisco? Or, or is it more about an opportunity in a space? It's it's more about the opportunity in the space. Yeah. Um, you know, most of the companies I invest in are in Silicon Valley. Uh -huh. And I mean, if I was to drill in, I bet most of them are in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, for the same reasons I just gave. So um, I'm not looking as an investor to specifically try to bring certain companies into San Francisco. Yeah. Um, as an investor, you know, that when I have that hat on, I'm just looking at, is this the right team? Is it the right opportunity? You know, things that a traditional investor will look at. Yeah. Russian Hill is a pretty awesome neighborhood. Do you really leave Russian Hill? Like other than work? Uh, we love it there. Um, but, you know, we've got two young kids. So we're always at, you know, at Barry Discover Museum yeah. or at parks or, you know, doing stuff with the kids. Yeah. Do you have a favorite part? Is one a specific park that you guys like to go to? So we are on the North Beach side of Russian Hill, and there's a new park that went up about two years ago called Joe DiMaggio Park. Uh -huh. That's awesome. Yeah. Five-minute walk from our place, beautiful park, and uh, we spend a lot of time there. Yeah. I, I love that. I lived in the city. I live in Marin now, but I lived in the city uh, for a while. And we used to love the fact that we could find like, a neighborhood park that we could go to. Our kids are a little older now. We're 14 to 8 now, 3. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, I grew up in New Hampshire, so, you know, I want to expose my kids to the outdoors. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we'll spend time in the Presidio and, and walking around there or doing hikes in Marin. Yeah. Um, I want them to have both, you know, a, a city life and to be able to see some of the things I didn't see until later on in my life. Mm -hmm. But getting out in nature and running around and getting scraped knees and all that stuff, that's part of being a kid. And that's important. One term that you hear a lot in San Francisco and the Bay Area in general is this notion of an echo chamber. And whether it's in tech news or in politics, where San Francisco is largely politically homogenous. What are your thoughts on on that part of the San Francisco culture? And uh, is it good? Is it bad? Is it does it matter? So I only have a couple major knocks on San Francisco, and that's actually one of them. So you know I'm a registered independent. Um, I did a lot of work for uh, the Obama campaign a couple of years ago, and uh, you know really believed in that president and. Um, one of the issues with San Francisco, though, is that last election, I believe, we voted 93% Democrat. And there's really no second voice in the room. And that's been an issue that I've seen here for many years. Um, although I did vote Democrat, you know, I was part of that 93%, but I feel like we don't have the full level of discourse um, that we, sh we could have especially around politics. And right now we've got a very polarizing president. Um, so it's really hard to have that, that discussion from both sides. Um, but I feel like, you know, I've been here long enough through, you know, a couple different presidencies that we've never really had that. And, and I think that's one of the, the few shortcomings of the city. When you uh, saw the election result, or maybe this is something you don't really even think about, 
Is Trump good for business or bad for business? He was positioned that he was going to be good for business. Um, you know, he came from, from business. He didn't come from politics. He's got some good people around him, um, like Gary Cohn and, and, and others. When you have someone that's unpredictable, that's bad for business. Even if you have someone that says, I want tax reform and I want all these things that are on the business side, not, you know, forget the wall and, you know, and, and other crazy stuff he wants to do, but just specifically on your question on business, markets don't like unpredictability. And that's what he's brought. And the inability for the, for the administration to get health care passed, therefore makes it that much harder probably to get tax reform passed. And that to me, if you're the pro-business guy and you can't, you know, you can't get any legislation uh, approved, then you really aren't that valuable to the business community. Drilling down a little bit more to make it San Francisco-centric, we've seen that he doesn't mind taking shots at the tech community. In fact, he seems to abhor the, the tech community to a, to a certain extent. Are you worried about the FTC randomly cracking down on Facebook, Google, and other places that have an anti-Trump stance? I think one of the reasons that he is anti-tech is because 90% of the tech community was against him. And I think that he's very reactive that way and emotional and probably immature um, to react that way instead of looking at the bigger picture. But because he is an emotional guy, yes, he could react in a way to try to use the FTC's power against companies like that. To me, it depends on what they're trying to do, you know, to Facebook or Google. You know, if it's around privacy issues that they should be thinking about already, I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. If it's just to be vindictive, um, then that's really bad for the whole ecosystem. I mean, you do have Facebook and Google and Microsoft and Amazon and Apple. Those five control a huge amount of power around the world, but especially in tech and Silicon Valley. So there should be some checks on, on all those companies, um, especially around privacy. And that is a good thing. But when you use power to be vindictive, then that's not going to fly here. And I, and I think for most people around the world, they're not going to want that either. There's a discussion that Sunil and I have around this idea that some of the things that happen in Silicon Valley get fetishized. And they're tried, maybe entrepreneurs and maybe individuals think that just because it's happening in Silicon Valley, it should be happening everywhere else. So we have this long-going discussion around what are the things that we see that are happening right now in the Bay Area that we want to see happen elsewhere in the world. Yeah, I think there's there's more than one. So give me, give me a couple here because yeah. it's such an exciting time in Silicon Valley. I'll give you three examples. One would be the on-demand economy and how that's transformed the way that we live here. So San Francisco or Silicon Valley um, is lucky because we are the test bed for a lot of on-demand companies. So VCs will invest money, institutional money, into these companies, and then they need to test it somewhere. And most of these companies are started here, so the obvious place to start it is your backyard, right? Yeah. So we get to benefit from trying all these new things. And most of it is at the expense of the VC, right? They're subsidizing a lot of what we get to benefit from as consumers to see if it's going to stick or not. And really, like Uber and Lyft are still subsidized by institutional investors. I mean, we can ride pretty cheap because of that. In the on-demand economy, you know, like for us, my wife and I are using Uber or Lyft every single day. We order Instacart at least twice a week because we've got kids and we're always forgetting or we need more fruit or milk or whatever. Um, I don't have to stand in line at Whole Foods. I actually have someone that goes and does our shopping and then this is all through Instacart and they go to Whole Foods and they bring it to us and we pay some small fee for that. 
like what a great use of unlocking my time to go let someone else do that and pay them for that too, which which is great. And then, you know, if you want food delivered, there's Caviar, Uber Eats or DoorDash or so on. Even my three-year-old daughter knows about all these services by name. Yeah. Like last night I came home <laughs> after a dinner and I rushed home and she's like, Dad, did you take an Uber home? And I said, yeah, I did because I wanted to make sure I got home to put you to bed. My three-year-old is, is calling out Uber or she'll say, hey, Daddy, you know, can I can you order this on Amazon Prime so it's, you know, I have it tomorrow. She's three years old, right? So all these on-demand economy companies that are specific or at least started in San Francisco many of them never even make it out of San Francisco yeah but we get to benefit from that and be the guinea pig and I think that's a really cool thing uh, here and I think that a lot of those services have broad applicability many of them might be focused on cities but still broad applicability outside of San Francisco so that's one yeah on demand number two that I'm sure you've talked about with other guests would be autonomous vehicles a lot of that work is being done in Silicon Valley. I'm super excited about that. I think we're still five to 10 years out of mass adoption. We still have some safety hurdles to get through and regulatory, but once that's there, it will change the way that people are transported, that goods are transported. I mean, it's gonna to take tons of cost out of the system. And my daughter, who's three, may never have to drive herself, which is bizarre to me, but that's coming soon. The third area that I'm super excited about, again, not specific to only San Francisco, but I believe a lot of a lot of innovation will come in uh, from San Francisco in this area, and that's crypto. So blockchain is going to have a huge impact on the world, not to the degree that the internet did when people are like, oh, blockchain's a new internet. That's like saying, you know, any basketball player is the next Michael Jordan or hockey player is the next Wayne Gretzky. Like, that's a really high bar. But blockchain is going to change industries, both consumer and definitely enterprise. And crypto is just getting started. So I'm a big believer in that industry. I think a lot of great companies will be built in the Bay Area around this. Mm -hmm. And I'm super excited for that. Let's maybe bring the listeners who aren't as familiar with blockchain and crypto brief up to speed. If you had to give a 30-second explanation or, or less of blockchain, what is it exactly? So blockchain is basically a digital ledger. Think about like a digital database where different transactions are stored. And they're stored not by one individual like bank, but it's actually on a ledger that everyone can see and everyone can check. So it um, really democratizes the way that transactions can be done in a way that everyone contributes to and everybody can see. So you have that level of trust. Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Ethereum or, or different tokens that are coming through ICOs are a way to be able to transact on the blockchain, to be able to trade back and forth. And those are two different currencies, uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. What do you say to the person that's skeptical of cryptocurrency that says, look, I don't understand it. I don't transact with it. I don't see myself ever using anything other than a credit card. And it looks like currency speculation where some people are making bundles of money right now, but I want to stay away from that. I say that we are probably in like 1996 in internet time, which was a time when everything that had dot-com at the end of it all of a sudden was worth 10x and things got really frothy and you had a lot of pets.coms that went out of business and, um, and you had a couple companies like Amazon or Google or Yahoo or others that came out of that um, and changed the world. And right now is a highly volatile time to be an investor in crypto. But um, I do believe that crypto will change the world. And it doesn't mean you're going to use Bitcoin to buy your daily coffee next week. But there are lots of different applications for crypto, especially on the enterprise side, that will change the way that the world works. 
Um, so I would say coming soon, like 1996, there's a lot ahead of us in the internet back yeah. then. If you're not an expert in the space, you probably should not be investing in the space. But just know that um, this is coming soon and it will be a big deal for the world, this transparency and ability to, uh, to all contribute to something together. And on the uh, on-demand, just to follow up on that one, also from the, the skeptical person's viewpoint and as someone who started an on-demand company, why should I trust what you're building with on-demand companies? It sounds like this is a nice convenience for rich people to have, but is it really going to apply to my life in Cleveland? And why should I, why should I care about it? I'm kind, of, I'm kind of skeptical sitting on my couch here looking at you, Silicon Valley people who order things and have people pick up things for you. Yeah, and, and that's why I said I think there's broad applicability to cities, but not necessarily to the smaller towns where it, it may not scale. In cities where you've got people living in you know kind of close quarters and, and, and it's easier for delivery, you've got closer delivery from the store to the to the people. You've got people who highly value their time and that are working a lot of hours in the city. Um, I think that a lot of these, including Uber and Lyft, but definitely an Instacart, works better in the city. And I think when you make a determination on what your time is worth. And most people in the cities, I think, on average, get paid more than if you're in the suburbs. Those people will make a conscious choice to say, I'm willing to pay for that service because it saves me time. So that to me is the trade-off. I mean, if, if there's enough people in a geographic area, whether it's Cleveland or San Francisco or, or New York or London, if there's enough of those people that are willing to give up money in exchange for their time um, and make that trade-off, then that type of service could exist, as long as the unit economics for that service makes sense. So as an example, I was an, an investor in a company called Lux, which was on-demand parking. Like Uber, you'd have an app and you'd say, I'm here, and they would come and pick up your car, and then they'd go park it. In the city, that can save you a lot of time. In the suburbs, that would never fly. So it really depends on the service and, and whether or not it can scale beyond beyond a city. I'm still thinking about the implications of autonomous cars and our kids and our kids' identities. I like, grew up in the country, Getting to the point where I had a car was a big part of what made me an adult. Or at least right. that's what I thought. That freedom. And, and our kids, I don't think, really have to think about that. Your three-year-old is like, maybe she never has a car. My eight-year-old also is the same thing. He's like, Dad, I, I don't think I'm going to have a car. I'm just going to have one pick me up and take me where I need to go. Right. And it just is not going to have a person in it. it and, and it's going to change. I mean, even if you think about real estate prices. So, you know, let's say that you live in the suburbs now. And maybe your house, you know, is worth a little bit less because you've got more work to do to get to the city and or less than, than if you were in the city by right. square foot. And you have to own a car and all that stuff because you live in the suburbs. If you can have autonomous vehicles just pick you up every time and it doesn't cost that much, all of a sudden you're like people want to leave the city, which has been the, tr that, you know, that the trend That's has the been for the last yeah. 20, 30 years. Everyone's coming to the cities. But if you don't actually have to live in the city because you can work a full day and then just pop in the back of a car and do phone calls or do work or whatever, yeah. and you don't have to pay attention, that starts to get more attractive to live in the suburbs, right? So I think there's going to be all sorts of things. And then, you know, if you think about all the parking lots that don't have to exist, if you think about insurance that doesn't have to exist and being able to consolidate, you know, things like maintenance and all that stuff on cars, like all sorts of things are going to yeah. change. But the biggest thing will be you don't have to drive yourself anymore and our kids won't either. Yeah. Like our kids don't even know a world my kids don't know without internet. Yeah. Like when we're in our car and we jump on Waze or Google Maps or whatever, we know exactly to the minute what time we're going to arrive someplace an hour later. Yeah. And it's like really accurate. <laughs> yeah, it's 20 years ago you're using paper maps. I, like this is 20 years ago. Like all this has changed. So, you know, so it's super exciting time um, to be in tech. And, and, you know, going back to the San Francisco theme, this is the place. This yeah. to me is the epicenter of tech in the entire world. 
Um, and that's why I'm so excited and optimistic to be here. Something to think about. None of us are from the Bay Area originally, or Sunil kind of is, but we're, it's, it's debatable. He was born in Saratoga, then he went to Ohio. But I say that because I think that there's a lot of myths that exist about the Bay Area from outside of the Bay Area. So what's the number one myth that you want to dispel about the Bay Area for anybody that's not in the Bay Area? We've got a lot of interest from around the world in what we do here. Uh, you've got everything from movies like The Social Network about Facebook to Silicon Valley, the HBO show, which I love and it's great. But I think people think it's easier to build a company than it is, okay? And, you know, I've built three and, and, and I know how hard it is. I've invested in 50 as an angel investor, so I really know how hard it is. And I think it's kind of the equivalent of, you know, thinking, hey, I want to be an actor. I'm going to be the next Brad Pitt. I'm just going to go to L.A. and it's going to happen. You know, like coming out here and be like, I want to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. It's just going to happen. And the reality is for anybody, you know, coming out here, it's really hard. It's yeah. really, really hard. 85% of startups fail. So just because you're out here doesn't at all guarantee any kind of level of success. That said, I don't think there's any place better to start a company than San Francisco. I think we have um, an ecosystem that is very open and shares knowledge and information. Very different than Boston or New York. You know, I lived in Boston for years, and I feel like back east it's a bit more transactional, mm -hmm. where people um, are a bit more closed off and maybe want you to sign an NDA. Like, we would never, if someone says sign an NDA here, it's a red flag. Like, you're not from here, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> because we just share information, right? right. I mean, that is one of the coolest things about San Francisco to me, is that it's all about execution, not just ideas. I can, sh I, I want to share ideas. I want to get feedback. I'm not afraid you're going to steal my idea as long as I believe I can execute yeah. on my idea. I think it's a great myth, right? You don't just show up here and magically your startup idea becomes a thing. Yeah, <laughs> a lot harder than that. And, and, and it's something that, you know, I've talked about with lots of aspiring entrepreneurs and hopefully saved some heartache from them. They, yeah. they were probably disappointed by the end of my discussion with them on how hard it is. But, you know, you, you need to know what you're getting into. And Silicon Valley isn't, it's a place where you can follow that dream, just yeah. like you could follow the dream in L.A. to be a great actor. But just understand what it takes to actually succeed yeah. at that dream. That's a great, 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 great call. If you had a magic wand and could fix a few things about San Francisco tomorrow, civic issues, whatever they might be, what would be on your list? It could be bigger than a top three. It could be smaller than a top three. So number one, and I know you've heard this before from other folks, is homelessness. Um, we continue to have a, a homelessness problem that needs to be fixed. I've been here 18 years, and it hasn't gotten any better in 18 years, which is a real shame considering how much San Francisco has benefited from the tech boom how much money has come here, um, both as an investment and as taxes, and it's disappointing to me, greatly disappointing to me, that we haven't done more to fix a problem. Why is that? Why why don't we take the wealth that's been accumulated and fix this problem? It just seems so easy. Instead, you know, wealth is accumulated and invested in other startups, or you know, that's our kind of way of giving forward. Yeah. I don't think I don't think it is easy at all, actually, because I think you've got multiple constituencies that um, either have competing interests or have an interest that may be different than mine. So what I say there is that um, you know I've seen homeless people on the same corner for the last ten years. I know people who have given them lots of money and opportunity, and they still end up back there. And I don't know if that's substance abuse problems or if they really just don't want to have any responsibility. They don't want the job that was offered to them. Maybe they just like their life that way, and that's going to continue for some people. For others, I think that, and this will get me in trouble, which you guys probably love, I think San Francisco is too lenient sometimes. I, I don't think you know that they've taken a direct enough stance to say, we are going to change this. 
you know, New York cleaned up Times Square. And it was painful for a year or two for people, but it cleaned it up. And now it's this super vibrant place that's, you know, that, that's a real tourist attraction now, not just a place where, where cars, you know, come and go. And I would love to see a um, elected official here take a tougher stance and say, we are going to fix this problem. It's just gone on too long. So I'd love to see that. Let's talk about Twitter. Who are your two highest recommended right now, today, follows on Twitter? So Naval Ravikant is a good friend of mine, uh-huh. has been for a long time, and he is one of the brightest guys in the Valley. And that's a super high bar for me to say that, but he is. And Naval is also an expert in cryptocurrencies, which I'm obviously very into. Yeah. And Naval is just smart on everything. I mean, just anything he says, I'm always listening. But what he's talking about in crypto and blockchain is part of the inspiration for me to really get involved in, in, in that world. And I think he's an awesome person to follow. Mm. Another is uh, my friend, Tim Ferriss. Tim is a kind of a health wellness guru that is, uh, you know, he, he's put his own body and brain through lots of trials to be able to figure out what's on the other side. And then as a fun one, I love the Rogue White House. This is supposed to be people inside the White House that are tweeting what's really going on. You know, we don't know for sure if they're in the White House or yeah. not. I mean, and some of the things they say feels like they are, but I check that every day. There's some frustration because it's like, oh, nothing's changing there. And then it's definitely entertainment value. <laughs> You're like, that's a fun one. The chaos of the country. Rick, it was great having you on the This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley podcast. Thank Thanks you, guys. Us. I enjoyed it. Awesome. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, the podcast. We are always looking for great topic suggestions and suggestions for future guests. Email us at info at thebolditalic.com if you have suggestions on either. Thanks for spending some of your time today with us, and we hope you enjoy the rest of season one.